You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we're talking about the future. Gihan Pereira is a futurist, speaker, and author, and the conversation you're about to hear is, in my humble opinion, fantastic. Gihan's enthusiasm is infectious, he's smart and articulate, and he has some seriously clever ways about thinking about and understanding the future. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gihan Pereira. Gihan Pereira, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Look, I'm glad you're here, Gihan. You have one of these topics that just cannot be ignored. You must have a really easy time filling an auditorium when you speak. (laughs) Well, because I talk about the future, I think everyone does want to know what's coming up in the future. And, uh, you know, it's not about lotto numbers or anything like that. It's about uh, (laughs) the uh, the trends for the future. Yeah. So, if if you tuned in wanting Gihan to tell you which lotto numbers are going to win next week, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But I think you are going to be really happy if you tuned in to find find out about the future of thought and leadership and the way we should be thinking in organizations and, and in this industries generally, because that's what we're going to get to, Gihan. Look, I'm really interested as a futurist, and I love that. What a, what a fantastic profession. What a fantastic title to be able to call yourself a futurist. When you speak to audiences about what's coming our way what is it that you feel audiences, even audience who are otherwise very well-educated generally, what do you feel that audiences don't quite grasp the gravity of? They don't quite get this concept or that concept and how much it's really going to affect us on a, on a fairly uh, tight time horizon. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think that the, people are really interested to know what technology is around the corner and they're interested to know what's going to change in their lives. But I think that most people don't realize how much control they have over their own future. They know that there's things happening outside which are outside their control, like a new iPhone or self-driving cars or some new medical device, but they don't realize how much they can do to influence the way that their own future, their own future path is going to progress. So they think, well, let's wait and see what happens. They worry about artificial intelligence is going to come along and change their work life. They worry that a robot's going to come along and take their job. And all of those things could be true if you just wait for it to happen. But most people, I don't think, are confident about what the future holds for them. And one of the big things that I do, David, is actually give people a little bit of confidence and clarity about what the future holds. That is such a great answer. And now that you say it, it makes complete sense because there is this anxiety in the unknown. We all think and we all assume because we're told so often that some type of robot or AI is going to take most of our jobs and and the list of jobs that are going to be taken soon keeps expanding and keeps blowing me away, the, the type of things that they predict AI will do. And there is this sense of helplessness about it that we all just have to kind of sit back and wait for it to happen and to see if it if it is going to affect me. Will I get lucky or not? Will I be able to sneak through the rest of my working life or not? And as you're saying, we don't need to feel helpless about it. There's a lot we can do. 
Love it. What a great answer to that question. We're going to get to that. In a few questions' time, we're going to get to the heart of this discussion. And Gihan, I'm going to ask you to talk through the specifics of the future of leadership, the things within organizations and teams and leading myself personally that we can identify right now and future-proof ourselves for. And and I've read all about this in your book, and, and it's such a great topic. But I do have another question before we get there, because I just I could talk to you for hours about this this whole future stuff. It, it really is very fascinating. Tell me about, Gihan, your favorite story of disruption, whether it's an industry or an organization that's handled it particularly well or particularly poorly. When you hear the term disruption, what is it that you jump to? And there are plenty of bad news stories around disruption, David. Yeah. We all hear about yeah. Uber disrupting taxis, Airbnb disrupting accommodation, a Kodak being disrupted by Instagram and digital photography. But one of my favorite stories is actually a good news story. It's a, it's a company that did all the right things to be a disruptor and to continue disrupting themselves. And that company, which many of us know about now, is Netflix. So Netflix is, well, we know it now as an online streaming, streaming. media company. Yeah. But it's always been about getting movies into your home, getting entertainment into your home. And it started life as a DVD rental service. So it was competing with yeah. Blockbuster and all of those video rental stores. And they, they had the kiosks, didn't they? Yeah. And actually what they've started off with was they had a mail order delivery service. So you could, because wow, right. uh, the, the thing that people hate about videos and DVD rentals at the time was they just hated returning them to the shop. So And late fees. Yeah, and late fees, exactly. So the two things that they hate are those two things. And Netflix said, let's fix both those problems. So you yeah. could order your DVDs through Netflix and it would come with a reply paid envelope. And once you're done, you just pop it in the post and return it. So they solved that problem. But then they didn't, like you can imagine now, what if Netflix, all they did was try to be a faster DVD delivery faster. service. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and you do this little little bit of incremental innovation and change and getting better. But what they realized was, oh, actually, broadband internet is getting good. So now we can provide streaming. So they licensed content from these movie companies and TV production companies, and they were then made them available. So you could download and you could pay per view. Then they realized that customers were getting more comfortable with using like monthly subscriptions. They would happily give over their credit card. You could charge for a whole month at a time. So it then became all you can watch. And then they became so successful that the, the movie companies didn't want to license their content anymore because Netflix was becoming too big a competitor. So now Netflix started creating their own content. And now they've got one of the biggest movie studios in Hollywood is for Netflix to create their own. amazing story of evolution. Yeah. And all they did was they kept following the customer and they said, we don't care what worked for us in the past. Let's disrupt ourselves and be on the front foot for the future. That's a real theme of your book, isn't it? It doesn't matter what has worked for you in the past. It's about imagining what's going to work for you in the future. That's a great story. You know, my listeners have heard me a number of times, Gihan, talk about the industry that wins the worst award for reaction to disruption. And I think that's the taxi industry. The taxi industry had so much warning. They even had governments trying to protect it in a way that was never going to hold. But instead of tidying up their own act, and we all know how sloppy the taxi industry got, instead of tidying up their own act when they had all this warning, they could see Uber on the horizon. They knew that the internet was allowing customers to connect directly with service providers. 
Does the taxi industry clean itself up? No. They spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars taking Uber to court and lobbying politicians who they thought might fight for yesterday instead of trying to tidy up their act. I think worldwide, the taxi industry has to win some type of award for worst response to disruption. <laughs> well, everything you're saying is 100% correct, David. That uh, And because the taxi industry is so customer-facing and people, you know, individuals use taxis from time to time, it's been the one that has kind of been the the poster child for being disrupted, but it's not mm. the only one. And yeah. actually, I've got some sympathy for them because they were like really tightly controlled and regulated. They thought that by having this tight market, they were able to you know, build value for themselves. And they just didn't realize that there were these disruptors who came along and people like Uber and Lyft were illegal. <laughs> they were illegal. Yeah. And I remember the time when they were illegal, the tax industry was trying to operate within the laws, but Uber provided such a compelling experience for mm. their customers that you know, laws are made by governments and we we will make laws to supposedly, like ideally, improve our lives. And so governments change laws because Uber was providing a more compelling customer experience. Way back, a, a bunch of episodes ago, I spoke, what episode was it? Number 46, I spoke to Anders Sorman Nielsen. Mm. I don't know if you know him I from do. the Futurist Club. I do. And that was a great chat, and he taught me a lot about everything that we're talking about tonight. But something that really stuck in my head was he was telling me that industries that are ripe for disruption have have three characteristics, where consumers experience a lot of friction, where there are inefficiencies that cause stress for the customer, and when there is a non-value-adding middleman. And that, again, is a case study for so many of the things that we've seen disrupted. The taxi industry is a perfect example of that, that non-value-adding middleman, that person that you used to have to call that would answer the phone, take your order, and then they would radio through to the taxi driver. I mean, there was obviously a lot of friction and there was obviously a lot of unnecessary stress for the customer. I really like those three characteristics. What do you think of those, Gihan? Do you agree with those? Are there any missing or are there, is there something there that doesn't belong in that list in your opinion? Yeah, and I love Anders and I love his work. And the way that I put it, David, is that the world is moving towards fast, flat, and free. So we're expecting right. things faster than ever before. We're expecting prices to go down and value to go up. And we're expecting that uh, the flat part of it is that we, we remove that friction and the hierarchies and obstacles, things getting in the way, which is exactly what Anders is talking about. So I think the businesses and industries that are ripe for disruption are the ones that have the opposite of fast, flat, and free, which is slow, bumpy, or expensive. So if you've got any wow, of those three things, great. if you're slow, someone will find a way to be faster. If you're bumpy, which is the friction and the obstacles, then someone will find a way to be to be flatter. They'll flatten the, the distance between Experience. customers. And, yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you're expensive, then someone will find a way to be to do it cheaper. So Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, he famously said, uh, your margin is my opportunity. And yeah. that's yeah. what they do. Yeah. They look at margins because margins are, that's friction and that's a value that you're creating, but uh, sorry, that's a value to the business, but that value might be able to be reduced. And some smart, savvy startup or massive company like Amazon will come along and will um, reduce that margin. 
That's great. I like that fast, flat, and free, or even more so, slow, bumpy, and, and expensive. expensive. That is good, Gihan. I like it. I'm going to add that to my little loop of things that I remember. <laughs> now, I've got to ask you the most obvious question. What do you say to people about robots and AI? When people talk or are concerned, they have anxiety about what's coming, will it be my job? Am I going to go? Will I finish my working life on the unemployment queue? What's your basic rule when it comes to trying to work out what's coming and when and who's going to be affected? Okay, so the very first thing is that it's something that, you know, there is an issue here. So the latest research about Australia from the Australian government says that about 40% of jobs are at risk of being automated or replaced in the next 10 to 15 years. So it's 40%. So it's not 99%, but you know, it's not 10% either. So there's a significant yeah. issue. So the, the real question is, are you going to be part of that 40% or are you going to adapt so that you can then move and shift and adapt and be nimble and agile and flexible so that your job isn't at risk? Now, mm. the reality is that a lot of the talk is too pessimistic and it's too dramatic that uh, it's not that it's going to happen in a very dramatic way and it's not going to happen very soon so a lot of the changes that are happening in robotics and automation, sure, they're going to happen, but they're not going to happen instantly. So the immediate fear is probably overstated and overhyped. The other thing is that the real answer is that robots and humans together are more effective mm. than one or the other alone. So, and when I say robots, it's not only these, it's not only the, the physical robots, but it's artificial intelligence. At the moment, uh, a human and a, a human grandmaster playing chess together with the help of an AI robot or AI software is better, can beat the best AI software and can beat the best humans. So the way that we're going to see AI and robotics in our, in our world is going to be AI helping humans. So you can imagine you walk into a retail store and there will be some AI that detects your face, recognizes you as a past customer immediately pops up something on the shop assistant screen saying, this is Gihan Pereira. He's come in here three times in the last year. This is what he's bought in the past. Here's something that you may want to suggest that he might be interested in buying this time. And uh, that's where AI is really useful. And it doesn't replace a human. It's not that you're going to have a, a robot who's going to be serving me, but it'll be a human who's taking advantage of the, the intelligence that, that intelligence. this robot has provided that the human couldn't do because the human, like, we as humans can't hold all that information in our heads. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't be trying to. We've got technology that can do that. What we should be thinking about is the human side of that human-to-human -human interaction. You know, that's a really optimistic view, and, and it's one that I'm starting to really buy into. Anders said something to me very similar. That's going back two, two and a half years. I've just read or started reading that fantastic book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Harari, and he talked about exactly the same thing. In fact, he gave a similar example about AI and a human chess player being more formidable than just an mm -hmm. AI, and now I've heard it from you that it will be that confluence of AI and humans into the future that will be the ultimate experience for customers and for organizations. So there's there's every reason for us to be optimistic about having a place in that future. Exactly. And I think if 
if anything, you're not going to be replaced by a robot or by AI. You're going to be replaced by a human using a robot or AI. Uh-huh. And so for us, I think our, one of the things that we have to do is be lifelong learners and learn how to use AI and learn how to be comfortable with using the sort of outputs that AI can give us to help us do our job better. That is great. Another reason for hope. You're not going to be replaced by AI. You're going to be replaced by a human who's using AI. So that's every incentive to be thinking and continually educating ourselves and staying alert of what's happening. Gihan, that's fantastic stuff. All right. Now, let's get to what I really want to talk about. And I could talk about that stuff with someone like you for hours. But let's get to the the leadership, being part of a team, being part of an organization part. Now, in your book, you do a really lovely job of describing five quite logical domains of the workplace. And what was the old established way of viewing those domains? And what is the the new disruptive way of viewing those domains? The domains are this, team, work, development, motivation, and rules. Now, Gihan, I don't know if I'm stretching your memory too much to go into this detail, but I'm hoping you can talk us through each of those, the way that we used to view them and the way that we need to view them going forward. And why do we need to view them that way? And and what will those behaviors specifically look like? Let's talk about team, being part of a team. It used to look like fit. It now looks like diversity. What do you mean by that? Yeah, exactly. And actually, can I just start off by saying, so those five domains are based on some research that was published by Harvard uh, recently, talking about what best employees want from their workplaces now. And it's changed from better super and uh, better holidays and uh, you know those sort of perks. People want these things now. And uh, and it's, it's wonderful because the, the workplace has changed and the way that we do work has changed. So let's come back to, to what you were just saying there, David. So what's changed is that in the past, we used to hire people for fit because we had these very clearly defined job roles. Let's go back to the days of the assembly line. And I know we've come a long way from there, but that's that's a really good example. In the days of the assembly line, somebody had a very specific role and you wanted somebody who could do that role very, very, very well. And if they deviated from that, it actually messed up everything else. So now, obviously, we've evolved since that time, but still, many organizations are hiring people because they're a good fit for the role. You hear those but words, they're a good fit. They're a good fit. You hear that all the time. So we want somebody who's a good fit for this. But that was perfect because in the past, because the fit was really good for the, for the job of the past or the role of the past. Now, with our world changing so fast, we actually want diversity in our teams because it's no longer the most senior people, the most experienced people, the people who've been in the job the longest know how to proceed and succeed in the future. We need that diversity. And the research shows that organizations who have the diversity and inclusion. So, you know, the difference between them, David, so diversity is like having lots of textures in your pack and inclusion is actually using them when you're, <laughs> when you're drawing, right? Um, <laughs> That's great. So, so you can't just have, you can't just tick the diversity box and go, we've got diversity if you're not actually using that yeah. diversity. So the research shows that inclusive teams, so, so organizations who actually embrace diversity are more innovative, they're more productive, the people are happier, the people want to stay longer. So 
it's an actual strategic advantage now. It's not just a feel-good thing. And, and it makes sense. If we've got this myriad problems out there in the world, and they're very different from the problems of the past, it totally makes sense that we want to have a diverse team so that they can help you solve those problems. It, uh, when you think about it that way, it seems pretty logical, right? Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. When you've worked with organizations that have grasped this concept, they've gone from an old way of thinking, uh, struggling with diversity and inclusion, maybe using it as a tick-the-box exercise because they think they've got to, but then they break out the other side and they're actually doing the diversity and inclusion thing well. They get it, they see its value, and it's it's working for that organization. What's the key moments? What are the catalysts for that to kick into an organization? Yeah, so the biggest thing is that you've got to have strong leadership. So you need the leaders who are willing to say, who are willing to be humble, first of all, and say, actually, I don't know anything, and maybe this person who might be different from me, comes from a different background, maybe a lot younger than I am, but they've got different expertise, different perspective, that they actually have something of value to add. And yeah. so, first of all, we need to create that environment, so the leaders need to create that environment. And then what happens is that they actually realize that somebody in the team meeting had a brilliant idea and we put it into action and it turned out to be right. And it's when the leaders kind of get that, oh, I would never have done it that way, but I'm so glad I listened to this person because they were right. And it's not even that they were right, but I was wrong, but it's like they were right and they had an idea that I'd never thought of. And you see these light bulb moments. Yeah, you, you just see these light bulb moments in the team when the team as a whole, and particularly the leader, says, you know what, let's try this. Let's try this crazy idea. And it's not that we're going to bet our whole organization on it or that someone's going to lose their job. It's let's just try this idea. Let's just try it out and see what happens. And they're pleasantly surprised when they find it works. And then they go, well, if it worked that time, let's, give let's some do more it again. Of that. Yeah. And do it again and do it again. So if we need a leader with some self-esteem, someone who understands themselves and is comfortable enough with themselves to be able to say, I don't know, let's try something new. It, rather than listening to the engineers in the room again, let's listen to someone else in the room who maybe wasn't an engineer all of their career. Let's break the mold a little bit. That's great. That's team. That's the team domain. And we, we talked about the fact that we used to be all about fit, but now we're about diversity. The second domain is work. And in his book, Gihan talks about work used to be all about information. But now in the future, as we disrupt ourselves and future-proof ourselves, we need to start thinking more about authority when it comes to work. Tell us about that one, Gihan. Yeah, so this is about delegating work because uh, obviously if you're working with a team, then you need to delegate work to your team members. And the old way of doing delegation was you give somebody a task and you you assume that they've got the skills to do that task, but you tell them, you know what, do this task, and if you get stuck along the way, or if things change around around you, come back to me, and we'll figure out the answer together. That was fine, except that you become the bottleneck, and now there are so many things changing yeah. that you've got your team members coming back to you all the time. So the the real solution now is that you really need to empower them, and we've been talking about empowerment for a long time, but what you want to do is really give them authority to operate and act on that information. 
So one of the stories I love is the story about David Marquette. David Marquette, brilliant. Yeah, Commander-in-Chief of a U.S. Navy submarine. You can imagine the Navy is very hierarchical command and control. He took charge of the submarine for the first time, and they were doing these they were doing these exercises before they went out into active deployment. And one of the exercises was turn off the nuclear reactor so the submarine goes to battery backup and then see whether the crew on the bridge can fix the problem and restart the reactor. And Market was on the bridge. He saw that they were doing a great job. He decided to make the, to make the problem harder because he saw this a very well-drilled crew. They knew exactly what they were doing. And so he decided, let's increase the speed of the submarine so the battery drains faster. It makes a crisis bigger. And so he, he told his second-in-command, you know, order the helmsman to go to ahead two-thirds, so two-thirds of maximum speed. So the second-in-command said to the helmsman, ahead two-thirds. And then nothing happened. And Marquette's going, what's going on? And he sees the helmsman uh, squirming in his seat. So he says to him, what's the problem? And uh, the helmsman says, sir, on this ship, there is no two-thirds setting, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so anyway, so he figures out what the actual setting is, does it, the exercise works fine. Later, he takes his second-in-command aside and says to him, did you know there was no two-thirds setting? And he said, yep, commander, I did. But because you told me to do it, I did. I, I gave the order. The order. Unbelievable. And, uh, and Marquette was shocked. Like He was a newbie. He was, the, he was a novice on this ship. I mean, he was a Navy commander, but this is the first experience he had on this ship. So all his crew knew that, but because he had the stripes and uh, – he had the authority, he was obeyed. And he spent the next 12 months changing that culture around. And this is one of the things he said. In the past, what would happen was that you'd push authority to information. And so what you'd say is instead of, sorry, you'd push information to authority. So as soon as somebody more junior had some information about how the world changed, they'd push it upwards, up the hierarchy to somebody who had authority to act on it. Share that information with someone who can make a decision. Exactly. And you disempower the people who actually have, have information. the information. Yeah. yeah. And he said, no, other way around, push authority to information. So empower people, give them the skills, teach them about decision making, and give them the responsibility to make decisions. And in, like, in our fast-changing world now, that's the only way that you can operate successfully because uh, otherwise you, you move too slowly and somebody else will come along and disrupt you. You make the point in your book that if you're in your team, people have to push information for you to make a decision. They say, hey, boss, here's all this stuff I've been working on. Here's all this stuff I know. Can you please decide? Then there is a massive problem because clearly they know the answer. They're the one with all the information. You can help them with organizational direction and, and all of that kind of big picture stuff, but the authority to make that decision should be on the person who has all of that information. So if that's happening in your organization, there's a red flag there and you need to change things in order to future-proof yourself, your team, and your organization. And you ask some great questions about the rules, whether they're unwritten or explicit in your organization that gets in the way of pushing authority to the information. And you also ask your readers to think about, all right, if I was to turn this around in my team, in my space... Who would I start with? Which who, Who's the individual I, I might start doing that with? And that's a really nice way to think about it. 
Hey, Gihan, there's, as you would know, there is a wonderful YouTube clip of David Marquette. It's a beautiful little simple animation that became all the rage about five years ago. And it's David Marquette talking about the story of himself being, you know, in charge of massive nuclear submarines, but not actually knowing how they work. But he knew that he, he grew very comfortable quickly with the fact that that's okay. It's not his job to know the ins and outs. It's his job to, to know who does know the ins and outs and to be to train them and and lead them so that they understood it was okay for them to make decisions based on what they knew. I love that. I love the story in your book, and I love that YouTube clip. Have you seen that YouTube clip, incidentally? I've seen a number of them, so I don't know. I can't right. remember the specific one you're talking about, David. But Turn, uh, turn the is, Ship Around is the one I'm Turn the Ship of. Around, exactly. And that's the title of his book. And I love the subtitle, right. which I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, but it's something about turning followers into leaders and uh, one, of the, one of my favorite quotations around leadership is that the, the first job of a leader is not to create followers, but to create more leaders. And that's yes. exactly what we need now. If we want a business and organization that's full of leaders uh, rather than somebody just waiting for somebody at the top to tell them what to do. Okay. We're talking to Gihan Pereira about the future, about industries and about your organization specifically and what you can do as a leader to future-proof yourself and the people around you. We're talking about these domains of organizations and teams and leadership. We started with team and we talked about diversity being important now, whereas it used to be about fit. We've talked about work and the fact that we used to push information towards authority, but we need to turn that around. We need to push authority to those who have the information and the third of the five do domains is development. Gihan, talk us through that. You talked about the fact that we used to think of training. That was the established way of thinking about development. But now and in the future, we need to think about talent. Yeah, and it's just broadening that thinking. So uh, when I say we used to think about training, training used to be the go-to tool that we used to use to develop our, develop our team members because we had kind of had to do it that way. If you want to teach somebody skills, the most efficient way of doing it was to get their whole bunch of people in a training room, bring in a trainer, people were down, were down tools for maybe a day or half a day. But So there's a little bit of lost productivity, but that was the best way to do it. But now there are so many other ways to develop your team members. So think about talent as a whole. And, uh, and one of the things I love is not only developing your team members, but also using their talent, their skills, their perspective their expertise, which comes back to what we were talking about earlier, David, with diversity, to develop the rest of the team as well. So I love the idea of mentoring. So the idea that the more senior person mentors a more junior person. So you can do that on a one-to-one -one basis. You don't need to wait to bring a whole bunch of people together in a training room. But I, even more than that, I love the idea of reverse mentoring. And when I speak to audiences, uh, when we talk about this topic, I often say, how many people are mentors are involved in a mentoring program? And you know what? With many audiences, more than like 50% of the people put up their hands, which I love. I love the fact that mentoring is now becoming established and considered mainstream in our organizations. But then I ask the second question, how many of you are involved in reverse mentoring? And I'm lucky in an audience of a couple of hundred people, if a handful of people put up their hands, it's, it's rare. And the idea of reverse mentoring- there's that many. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's becoming like more and more people are at least hearing about it. But the idea is that now the more senior person is mentored 
by the more junior person. So one of my past clients, and, and she's only past client because she retired a couple of years ago, is uh, the former CEO of a, of a law firm in Sydney, Janet. And what Janet used to do was every three months or so, she would have a new mentor. And the mentor would be somebody who was younger than she. And younger meant one of three things. Either they were uh, literally younger in age, so it might have been a young person, uh, they were younger in the firm, so somebody new to the firm because she was interested in getting ideas from uh, wherever they'd come from, or younger in the law. So they were a recent graduate, regardless of their age, because she was interested in finding out what was being, being taught at universities about law. And what she would do was every every week or a couple of weeks, she'd have a coffee with this person. And she'd say, I'm the student, you be the learner, uh, you be the teacher, uh, you tell me, tell me what's going on, tell me what you think about not only about legal things, but what's happening in the world, what are some new apps you've seen, what are your thoughts about anything. And uh, so the obvious thing that people often go to is, I want to ask a young person about technology, because they yeah, know more course. about it than I do. Absolutely. Absolutely, you should do that. But just broaden your thinking. They have different perspectives about buying and, and owning things. Like we talked about Uber, is you may never buy a car again if you're willing to just use ride-sharing services like Uber. So it's completely transformed the idea around ownership. You may never want to buy a home and tie yourself to a 30-year mortgage if you think that you're going to be a global citizen and you're going to be traveling every three or three to five years and transferring jobs. And you may have different views around wealth and retirement and same-sex marriage. And if you don't ask these questions, these are your customers as well who are out there. And by setting up this reverse mentoring, if you don't ask these questions, you might not know what's happened, what's happening outside, and you're basing all your experience on what you know and what was based on you know, what used to work for you. It's like driving with your, by looking in the rear view mirror uh, rather than looking ahead to the future. It's a beautiful concept, reverse mentoring. I love it, Gihan, and I can see how effective it would be for, for two people who have bought into it wholeheartedly. But, you know, I, I've mentioned this a few times on my podcast. One of my fears is that, HR gets hold of this as a powerful concept and then they systematize it. And they say, okay, everyone at this certain level of the organization and up, you've got to do X number of hours of re reverse mentoring this year. And then they just go through the motions of doing it. And if you're not committed, if you don't like the idea, if you can't see what you're going to get out of it, then it could become a bit of a flop and it could become something that cynics kind of kind of mock from the side of their mouth. It's a beautiful concept, but do you hold that kind of fear for systematizing things like that that are sort of more art than process? Yeah, so one of the things I love about mentoring in general, with its traditional mentoring or reverse mentoring, is that it doesn't need to be official, formal, proved even. It's something that two people can get together and do it. And you know, the old- It's a relationship. It absolutely is. And you can just do it informally without any sort of other structure around it. And if you think about the way that, that mentoring used to be it used to be taught that your boss should never be your mentor. So traditionally, your mentor would be somebody from outside that hierarchy. But now the idea of manager as mentor, leader as mentor, is almost to be expected. So uh, particularly Generation Y, the millennials, or Generation Z, the younger generation, which is just moving into the workforce now, they want their boss to be a mentor, not just to be a manager. So they're demanding that. So the idea is that if you want to start mentoring or you want to start reverse mentoring, go for it. You don't need anyone's permission. 
You don't need HR. You don't need your boss's permission. Just set it up. The key is that you as a leader have to set up the right environment and give your mentor permission to speak freely because they may not be used to that. They may not expect it. They may be worried about speaking their mind. And so you, your job as the mentoree is to just make it really clear to them that, you know, you can talk about anything you like. There's no penalty. This is, I want to be the student and I'm giving you permission to speak freely. So yeah, look, it can be a problem if then it becomes, yeah, it, it becomes taken, it gets taken over by well-meaning. Part of the system. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Well-meaning HR department. And then it just becomes, you know, people pay lip service to it and become cynical. But you know what? I think it's so small at the moment. That risk is a very small risk. We're not in danger of that yet. I was, geez, no. I was being particularly pessimistic there, wasn't I? I've just yeah. given myself a slap, wake, wake up, <laughs> Gihan. That was pretty negative. All right. Now, we're, we're up to the fourth of these domains, which is motivation. We've gone from team to work to development. Now we're to motivation. And, and you spoke really nicely in your book about the fact that it used to be about engagement. There was kind of a transaction. I pay you, you come and you work hard. You give me your skills and your intelligence. That's the transaction. That's the engagement. And it needs to be a, more about meaning. Good people don't come to work and give their best for a transaction. So we need to move from engagement to meaning when it comes to motivation. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and it's really interesting that uh, there's a whole bunch of work at the moment, again, really well-meaning work and successful work with employee engagement programs. So there's a lot of talk about you know, the, the customer experience when you look outside your organization and then bring it inside as well. What's the employee experience like? And so just as we talk about customer engagement, there are a whole bunch of programs around employee engagement. And I think they're great, but there's one thing that trumps the whole idea of this employee engagement, and that's motivation. If you've got people who, sorry, that's meaning. So people are motivated automatically if you give them work that has meaning. So if their passion aligns with your purpose, then they come to work because their work has meaning. They feel that they have a passion. They want to do some work that's meaningful. And by working for your organization, they're able to, that becomes a vehicle for them to be able to achieve that passion. And so, yep. And the research again shows like the Generation Ys, the Millennials. So one piece of research that said two out of three won't work for an organization that doesn't have strong values, mission, purpose. And obviously that has to be aligned with their own. So yes, people do want you to, they want to share the journey with you. So what do you stand for? And then if we stand for the same thing, then we'd love to work for you. And if they're not aligned, then we don't. We don't really care. It is a real generational thing, isn't it? I've had a number of guests have mentioned that to me. My parents, boomers, they were happy to go to work for the transaction. And part of the transaction was a job for life if you got it. If you wanted it, something very stable. You can stay here forever, son. And then we moved to my generation, and I'm a generation X right in the middle of the Ys and the boomers. I'm that small kind of transition generation. Mm, so and then am I. the Ys, are you, we're, we're, we're right in that middle. We're, we are, we're non-defined, I feel, Gihan. We are, we are neither boomer nor Y. We're just little old X. And then the Ys and the Zs, 
as opposed to the boomers, they absolutely demand meaning. They demand it from the beginning of their career. They need to feel a purpose. And here we are, Gihan, right in the middle. We started our career in the old transactional way. And now that we're at the point of our careers where a lot of us are senior or leaders in organizations, we're being asked to think in a completely different way for these guys, Ys and Zs, who have never known any other way but to be seeking meaning in their work. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at those generations since you, since you brought them up, David, look at the boomers. As you said, job for life. And that was kind of the implicit contract. And then that changed. So we went, like our generation then became around career for life. So you'd have a single career, but multiple jobs. So you would do job hopping because your first employer wasn't, was never going to give you a job for life. And now we moved from, if you think for job for life to now jobs. And, and now we're talking about skills. So we have these generation Ys, the millennials and the generation Zs, who for them, I think skills are more important than jobs. And I always say, don't think about what job you should be training for. Think about the skills that you're acquiring because you're going to move across to different, multiple careers, different jobs, and those transferable skills are the ones that are going to keep you going. So if you, if you lost this idea of career and jobs, then what do you have? Who are you going to choose to work for? Well, organizations with a purpose and where, where your passion is aligned with their purpose. Fantastic stuff. It's so interesting, Gihan. All right. Well, we're up to the last domain. We've gone through team, work, development, motivation, which was all about meaning. And now we're up to rules. We used to work by policy and a lot of large organi- or a lot of organizations still work all about policy. But you're throwing in this really dangerous word, Gihan, this, this word that are going to get the in-house lawyers standing on the back of their chairs it's judgment. What do you mean by that? How do we move from policy to judgment? Yes, policy to judgment, or if you like, rules to guidelines. And absolutely right. This is the thing that makes a lot of people nervous because what you want ideally are people who can exercise good judgment. Now, that doesn't mean they don't follow the policies or the rules. It means that they know and they make smart decisions and wise decisions about when it's okay to break those rules. Now, obviously, there's some rules that you can't break, but there are others where there are times when it's okay to break them it's time, and other times when you should follow them. And that's a matter of good judgment. And so as leaders, so many leaders to have, have the good judgment, that judgment comes from their experience. And as a result of that, they've built up these insights, which then gives them good judgment. And yeah, there's some wise leaders out there but what wise people do is they know how to exercise judgment. And uh, yeah, it's a tricky thing because it's not something you can document. It's not something that you can say. In this case, you can exercise your judgment because the whole point is that they exercise their judgment independently and autonomously. Um, so let me tell you a story, David. I, I don't think I use this one in the book either. This is one oh, about uh, Nordstrom, which is a high-end retail store in the US. Right. So they're famous for their customer service. So they always say the customer's number one, the customer comes first. And so with Nordstrom, they do everything they can to make sure the customer's happy. So as an example, if you buy something from Nordstrom and you return it, they will give you your money back. You don't need a receipt. It might even have been damaged. They will give you your money back because they know the customer comes first. There's this famous story about Nordstrom where a customer came in to Nordstrom uh, with a set of car tires and said, I want my money back. Return this, I want my money back. 
And the rep said, no problem, sir. Here's your money back. Here's a refund. Now, Nordstrom doesn't sell tires. <laughs> wow, that's right? amazing. But this but that person rep, used their judgment. They used their judgment and they were praised for it, right? Because they said, we know that we're going to lose a little bit of money on this transaction, but the customer comes first yeah. and we know the lifetime value of this customer come back forever. Um, is worth more than this refund. And it's not only that customer, it's like the lifetime value of operating this way yeah. is worthwhile. Now, that, that person was not story. told you have to return things even if, they, if, if we don't sell them. He used his judgment. There are many, many other stories like that of Nordstrom customer reps doing that. And you say, well, how can you do that? And it's interesting that when somebody comes into Nordstrom for their first day at work, they get given an employee manual. And the employee manual literally says this, David. It says, rule one, use your best judgment in all situations. And then there are no other rules. Wow. That's great. Okay. What now, a great organization. Absolutely. Now, obviously, if you're an HR person, you're cringing at that. They, they yes. do have a little bit more in terms of compliance and everything that they need to do in a more detailed employee manual. But in terms of operational day-to-day, -day, here's how you operate on the shop floor. This is it. They make it really clear that we hire the best and then we expect you to use really good judgment. And uh, that really sets the tone for the way that they will operate on a day-to-day basis. And uh, this, was, this is a book that I read when I became a first-time manager in the 1990s. So this is like 30 years old, way before anyone was talking about disruption or social media or this kind of change. Nordstrom was doing that. But that story has become world famous, not only through Nordstrom, but around the world. Obviously, we're talking about it now, a generation later, because they made such a big point of good judgment being the real key to their success. That's pretty good long-term marketing. All Absolutely. right, Gihan, I love your positivity. In fact, you remind me of, of another, like I've said, I've, I've read a number of books of, of Yuval Noah Harari. I'm probably butchering his name. I've also really enjoyed The Singularity is Near by Ray Kurzweil. And the thing that you have in common with those two authors is your positivity, how positive you feel about the future. No matter all of the uncertainty and the things that we don't know that are going to pop up, we don't know how this technology is going to play out in the social dynamic, but you remain enormously positive about it all. So I want to ask you, Gihan, what is your future utopia? Where is all this headed? What's a realistic and positive outcome that we can all hope for? Yeah, let me add another person into that mix there, which I think, uh, who I think is a great person to to read and listen to, is Peter Diamandis, and uh, his like one of his books is called Abundance, and he's absolutely brilliant at creating these future scenarios. So for me, I love the idea that our future is going to have more choice, and we'll have more like more choices give us gives us more freedom, but paradoxically, too many choices restricts our freedom. So I love the idea that in our future, the people who take advantage of choice and be proactive and uh, are the ones who, you know, the, the ones who say we'd have more choice and more freedom available to us. So let's make some choices. They're yeah. the people who are going to be successful in the future. And I'd love to see a world where we have, like we have more choices, more freedom. We have more wealth, which we already do more wealth than ever before. And we use that intentionally and make smart decisions and uh, make wiser decisions smarter for the betterment of all. 
So in the future, we're still going to need to get up off our backside and do something about this thing called life. We can't be passengers, not even in this future. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting that in the past, because the rules were set for us and we had fewer choices, in the past, you know, life was a little bit easier because you kind of fit within what society expected of you, what your employee expected of you, what your family expected of you. It was a path. Now, we've got all of these options, but mm. it means that we've also got the responsibility to make smart choices and to make wise decisions. That is fantastic. Gihan, I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks, David. It's been a pleasure. And that was Gihan Pereira. As you may have guessed, I loved that conversation. The future fascinates me, as I'm sure it does you. And I love hearing and reading the work of people like Gihan who are able to make so much sense of it all and paint it in a very practical, positive light. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Gihan on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.